something out of this. We'll see. Thank you, Nate. Nate's my friend. I steal from his budget all the time, and it's fun. Hey, good morning, everybody. So when I learned how to drive, when you learned how to drive, where did they tell you to put your hands on the steering wheel? Ten and two, right? That's what I always learned. That's what it's always been my my whole life. Uh, you know what? It turns out that was wrong. Uh, the National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration says now that nine and three is where your hands are supposed to be on the steering wheel, and that's what they're teaching. What? They're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> well, apparently, it gives greater control to being able to steer the vehicle. Plus, because things have changed, the airbags. Uh, if your hands are at 10 and t- 2, it actually will inhibit the airbags from opening up on you. So that's an amazing thing to me when I discovered that. I, for those of us who've been driving for a long time, that's going to be a hard pattern to, to break out of. You're probably thinking, that was an easy pattern for me to break out of because the moment I was done with driving school, I was like this. <laughs> but if you, you know, and which I suppose is good if you need an airbag. But either way, patterns like that, that sometimes get upended because we were doing something a certain way that we were always sure that was the right way. And suddenly we've discovered, oh no, that's the, the wrong way to go about it. You know, we live in a world where we feel like we know how things work. We know how we need to approach life in order to get the most out of it. And then Jesus comes along and he tells us, you know, you got it all backwards. Let me show you how it's done. Let me tell you how it's done. So we're going to see an instance of this in our text today. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of John. If you would like to follow along in your own Bible or Bible app, head over to John chapter 11, please. We started chapter 11 last week, and we read the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead and buried for four days. And it is a remarkable story in and of itself, it's revealing Jesus's divine power and authority, even over death itself. But we also looked at it as a lesson concerning those times that we face in life where it seems like our hopes have died and and how that story challenges us to trust beyond what we're able to see, what we're able to perceive. Today, we're going to be reading the reaction, which that miracle prompts primarily from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And I mean, just a quick spoiler, they don't dig it. Uh, it's, it's not something they enjoy. So John sets up for us in our text today a stark contrast in this last section of the chapter. And of course, John's gospel is filled with contrasts all the way through it because the contrasts help us identify the patterns. You turn on the light, suddenly you can see, and suddenly in these contrasts of light and dark, we're able to see the pattern that emerges from that. So the idea of light coming in, creating this contrast, is thematically what John's all about. The broken world that we live in has patterns of living that people just tend to follow. We're, we're born into it. We grow up with it. And they're patterns that we've participated in uh, and considered normal. And in contrast, when the light comes, when Jesus is revealed, there's the pattern for life in God's kingdom, which Jesus came to to show us, to bring to light for us so we could understand what life is the way God intended it to be. So it's up to us then to recognize the patterns 
recognize Christ's patterns, recognize the patterns of this world that we live in, and begin rejecting the broken patterns and embodying the ones that lead to eternal life, the life we can say as God intended it, life that is whole and full and that goes on forever. And that's what we'll be considering today in our passage, the patterns that are revealed in these contrast of interests. And it'll make sense as we go, I promise. But if you're there in John chapter 11, let's start with verse 45. It says, Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen, this being Jesus being raised, or Lazarus being raised from the dead. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Okay, this is where we'll stop for a second. There's no way around it. I mean, this is just the reality that of the world that we live in. The reality of our lives is following Jesus. Jesus has a polarizing effect on people. It's always been this way. This, this one amazing miracle has two distinct effects on those who observed it or, or heard about it. Many, meaning most, who witnessed Jesus calling a man who was four days buried in a tomb back to life, believed that this is the work of the promised Savior. Others, though, decided this was a good reason to snitch on him. And, and I can't even think about the thought process behind that. Like, oh, well, that tears it. Now not even the dead can rest in peace. So we got we to stop this guy before he gets to my mother-in-law and brings her back or something like that. So, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea what the reasoning was on any of that. But, but when, the, when the leaders got the news, they gathered a council to have this fascinating discussion that we're privy to. I'm not sure how John became privy to it. But I'm going to assume Nicodemus, who was favorable to Jesus, was part of that and present in these and could have shared it with them. And they wonder what they're going to do because this guy is doing a lot of signs. And I find it curious that they seem to accept that signs are happening in this. No problem. I mean, they're not investigating to see whether or not this is fake news or anything like that. They aren't spending any time praying to discern if this is activity that God is behind and things that God is doing in these signs. They're not even searching the scripture to to discern if any of this lines up with the Torah. Is, is this, you know, what we were supposed to be expecting? Nope. What is their concern in verse 48? It's the Romans. They only have eyes for Rome in this. And this, interestingly enough, is the first and the only time in the Gospels that the Roman threat is clearly enunciated. It hangs in the background of all of the Gospels. Everything that we read in the Gospels has behind it the threat of the great Roman Empire uh, behind the scenes. But this is is one spot where it's clearly articulated. This is what's at stake from their perspective. If all the people start rallying around Jesus as the new Messiah, basically as the king of Israel, then Rome is going to take that as an insurrection and against their authority, against the empire, So they're going to execute every authority figure in Jerusalem and take away their right to pursue their religion. And the religion, we might add, is that's the basis for the power of these men who've gathered here. Discerning whether Jesus is truly the Messiah of God doesn't even enter into their thinking. It's not even anywhere on their list of priorities in this. It's something else. 
Notice they don't say the Romans will come and take away our dear fellow citizens, our brothers and sisters, our ability to worship God freely. No. What do they say in verse 48? Destroy what? First, first word in that. What did he say? Destroy our temple, our nation. And in the Greek, it's an emphatic declaration. This is ours. This is our stuff. This is what we have been able to rise to positions of prominence through. Eugene Peterson words verse 48 in the message as, if we let him go on, pretty soon everyone will be believing in him. The Romans will come and remove what little power and privilege we still have. So whose interests are at stake for these leaders? Here's the first contrast that we see between the patterns of this broken world and the patterns of the kingdom of God. And we realize that we are following broken patterns if self-interests are our highest priorities, are the things that are motivating us through our choices and interactions in life. This is without question the way our world system works. This is just, I mean, this is, we grew up in this. This is the the water that we swim through that we can't even recognize. It's our job to look out for number one. And in my case, number one is me, Uh, my interests, my security, my desires. These leaders who are supposed to be looking after the spiritual concerns of the nation don't care a bit about God's will in this matter. All they want to know is how they can protect their own tiny kingdom and, and, and power of self-will. For them, this was a political dilemma to be manipulated and played like a chess game in order to get what they wanted in order to maintain the power that they had. And the irony is, and it just we can't let it be lost on us, the irony of this is their political game was not the solution that they were hoping for. God, in his sovereignty, actually worked through their choices to bring about his own plan. And they thought they had to do something to stop Rome from taking what they wanted to hold on to. And yet, 40 years later, Rome was going to come and destroy everything anyway. This is the broken pattern, the faulty template of putting self-interest first. And it's out of sync with God's pattern for life. This becomes a huge challenge for us as 21st century American Christians because self-interest is the anthem of our culture. Right now, especially individualism is at an all-time high within our society. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting personal growth or achievement as an individual, but the danger is that it morphs into something where our own individuality and freedom gets prioritized over other people's needs or even other people's safety. Well, I've got the right to pursue my own happiness and that's what matters to me is what I'm going to do. We've got to put that mindset into the contrast that John is providing for us here, the contrast with the larger purposes of the gospel with the larger purposes of Jesus in advancing God's good and healing rule in this world by loving others and serving others and forgiving others, demonstrating Jesus and the reality of his kingdom in our lives as we live in this world. 
I've said this before, the Christian life cannot be revealed in isolated individualism. It just can't because it's expressed as care for others, as love for others. We can't love one another by ourselves. So, for example, if we're not willing to extend forgiveness to someone who wronged us, who legitimately wronged us, if we're not willing to forgive because we want to hold on to that sense of being wronged, uh, of that place of moral superiority over the offender, well, then our self-interests are the priority and we are simply continuing the broken patterns of this world and nothing gets any better. Nothing changes for the better. But if we can recognize these broken patterns and by an act of our will choose to speak and act in a way that's in harmony with God's plan, with His grace, with His love, with His forgiveness, with God's redemptive pattern, suddenly things do begin to change. Relationships get restored. The needy are helped. The marginalized are given a place to belong. And this world becomes better by degrees the way it was when Jesus was in the world, the way things were changing around him and his influence. Okay, well, as the narrative goes on, we see another symptom of the broken pattern, verse 49. Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Now, we'll stop there for a second. Here we're introduced to a man who's going to be very instrumental in the trial against Jesus, Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time. So as the Sanhedrin is discussing what to do with this Jesus movement that's emerged on the scene, Caiaphas stands up and he tells them plainly and in quick order what has to happen. And notice again, he says that it's better for you this group of leaders, which of course is including himself, what's best for the ruling powers and the status quo is that Jesus needs to be sacrificed. He needs to die so that the nation of Israel doesn't. Now there's two agents at work. We're going to get to that as this, as this verse is unfold. There's two agents at work in this statement, but, but we're considering the broken patterns and we discover another broken pattern here. We learn that we follow broken patterns if We sacrifice the interests of others in order to achieve our goals. This is the worst possible outgrowth of the earlier pattern of putting self-interests as a top priority. This is the outgrowth we saw way back at the beginning with Cain and Abel in the the disparity between the sacrifices and Cain. Putting self-interest at the highest place does something horrifying and he introduces a whole new pattern into the broken world of murder. I mean, this is the attitude that says, I don't care what the cost is to you. I want my way. And the possible horrors that result from that mentality are profound and history is teeming with it. I mean, think of the ramifications just in any kind of situation, the ramifications of an attitude that says, I don't care the cost to you. I want my way. If you get hurt or suffer loss or hardship, that's okay as long as it serves my purpose or my intended goal. We're going to see the sharp contrast to that here in just a moment. But we can all agree that that's not God's attitude, right? Because if it were, 
we'd be in so much trouble. We would none of us make it if it were his attitude. The thing that struck me as I was contemplating this passage is this whole discussion is set firmly in the context of religion. These are the religious leaders. Sure, their primary concerns appear to be about power and privilege, but that power and privilege is exercised from a religious platform. And this got me thinking about the church and what patterns we as the church are following in our desire to, to be faithful to God. I mean, we as the church can be following broken patterns as easily as individuals can. We may have goals that we can look at and say, well, these are biblical goals that may be born out of a desire to promote God's values as we understand them, promote those in this world. But are there other people's interests that have to be sacrificed in order for us to achieve those goals? Are there issues where we, in essence, say, I don't care what the cost is to you. I want these values enforced. And is that God's pattern? And I'm just asking. You'll have to ponder it. You'll have to take a long walk with a cup of tea and think about it for a little bit. Uh, And think about all the various scenarios something like this could apply to. The Sanhedrin was worried that Rome would come and retaliate if, if Jesus gained momentum and a revolution ensued. But they didn't even understand Jesus at all. At all. He had no interest in starting an uprising. None whatsoever. We never see it happen. As a matter of fact, his way is so much not insurrection that when even people tried to declare him a king, he disappeared on them. He vanished from their midst. That is so not what Jesus was about. His way is not by force. He'll say that plainly to Pilate later on. We'll get to that point when he stands before Pilate and says, listen, if my kingdom was like the kingdoms of this world, you bet we'd have an uprising on our hands. But he said, that's not the way God's kingdom works. It is not by coercion. His rule will advance in this world. It will conquer, but not with a sword. We worry. I mean, this is the constant fear. I was just reading a report about it. That, you know, they're always doing research polls and stuff on what little of the church is left. And one of the big top things is, though, the church is just paralyzed by fear right now. So many pastors are reporting that. The, the, the church full of Christians is afraid because we think if we don't fight for what's ours, for what we think is right, well, if we don't knock them down first, they're certainly going to knock us out. That's just the way this goes. But that is just living according to the broken patterns of this world. We live by a different pattern. We serve a different king. Russell Moore, who was the former president of ethics of the Southern Baptist Church, he's written a book recently called Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelicals. And it's largely warning us about following the wrong patterns as the church, largely talking about nationalism and things like that. And in an interview I listened to, he said that he's heard a similar story from multiple pastors, that they've quoted something, maybe even in passing sometimes, from the Sermon on the Mount, the famous statement of turning the other cheek. We have to turn the other cheek. 
And these pastors have said that they've been confronted by people in their churches saying things along the lines of, where did you get these liberal talking points that you're bringing up here? That's not the bad part. No, the terrible, the, the, the part that should make us all shudder, and I mean that, that's not metaphor. The part that really should send a chill down our spine is that when they hear that that was literally a quote from Jesus, they're not embarrassed. They don't apologize. It's not like, oh, I'll really consider my thoughts. No. The retort is, well, yeah, that's all fine and good, but that doesn't work anymore. We can't do that because that's weak. And I can't think of anything more troubling, more frightening. If you want to get frightened, that's what frightens me. You want to talk about a threat to the church? That's the threat to the church. Hear it. That is the threat to the church. If we get to the place where the teachings of Jesus himself are viewed as liberal and subversive, what's left? What's left but Ichabod? Now, I can actually hear the question. What is that? What are you talking about? What's what? You don't know. You don't know what it is. And so I pray that you don't find out. I pray that we don't find out. But as troubling as that could be, and it is troubling, there is encouragement because there is another pattern. We could focus on the bad patterns all day long. I could make a bunch of sermons out of that. But there's another pattern at work. There is another pattern. There is another force at work in this. I have great confidence in it. I believe it is a conquering force. And John elaborates on it as we continue. Verse 51. He did not say this. You remember Caiaphas has just said, one man has to die in order to preserve the nation. He did not say this on his own. As high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place near the wilderness to the village of Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. Then we get a time jump here um, because this was all taking place in close proximity to Hanukkah, which is in the winter months. And it says in verse 55, it was now almost time for the Jewish Passover. So again, a time jump into the fall or the spring. And many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. And they kept looking for Jesus. But as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, What do you think? He wouldn't come to Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. And that's where we'll stop at the end of the chapter here. So... This is the final stage being set. This is what all of this story has been leading towards, this final drama where, where the true power, Christ's true reign and rule is revealed. And, and I said before, what I want to look at here is um, verses 51 and 52 of this section because 
like we mentioned, there's, there's, there's two forces at, at work, two agents at work in what Caiaphas said. Caiaphas, I believe, spoke from his own will and his own choice, but God was an agent in this too, and he captured what Caiaphas said, and he turned it into a prophecy concerning the nature of Jesus's mission. We could say the nature of Jesus's pattern for what it was that he was going to do and fulfill to reveal God's intention for life. John affirms Jesus would die for the nation, but not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people everywhere scattered across this big wide earth, that great multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural family of God that is representative of what God is doing in this world. The Sanhedrin wanted to sacrifice Jesus to be delivered from the oppression of Rome, or at least Rome's repercussion if he were to gain momentum. But Jesus was going to die to deliver us from all of the consequence of sin. And the the stakes are so much different. Uh, It's a much bigger tableau than any of the religious leaders had ever imagined. And in this brief explanation, John provides us with a contrast, the self interested aggression of the Sanhedrin is shown in distinction with Christ's willing substitution of himself for a sinful humanity. And I really believe that tells us God's pattern for a good life is one of self-sacrificial love. This is the pattern that will conquer all things. This is the way of life for the follower of Jesus Christ. The very core of the good news is that Christ died for sinners. Substitutionary atonement is central, a central theme to the New Testament. And I certainly don't understand it all. I've said that before. There's a lot of mystery to that. But Isaiah 53, in forecasting the suffering Messiah, said that God laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all meaning all of the consequence that came as a result of mankind's rebellion against God, Jesus took on himself when he died on the cross. Jesus told us in the, in the Last Supper, something we're going to be observing today as we observe the communion, the Lord's table, that he was giving his life, his flesh and blood as a sacrifice, as a means of establishing a new relationship with God. How does that work? You know, how does it work? That, that man, you know, I have been studying this my whole life, I feel like, and I still can't give you a detailed explanation of how this works. I fall back on C.S. Lewis calling it a deeper magic from before the dawn of time. There's just a lot of mystery to this, but there is something elemental that it touches as well. There's just some ineffable response to his willingness to take my, the consequences of my sin to himself. I choose to believe it, though I'm not going to pretend to understand it or the mechanics of it. It's Aslan taking on the consequences of Edmund's betrayal, seeing to it that the worst of it fell on himself. But this sacrificial love is the heart of God's pattern. It wasn't, it wasn't revealed through Jesus to provide us relationship with God so that then we would turn around and use the broken world patterns to advance what he wants. He was revealing it to us because he is our savior and the one we follow. We are his disciples, which means we follow, we imitate his pattern. His sacrificial love, this is how the kingdom advances. Redemption is his aim in this. And those things that work in cooperation uh, with redemption 
are the life choices that are encouraging wholeness, wholeness in us. God's rule and the peace of his kingdom comes by a cross. It's a, a cross. It's a symbol of selfless surrender. That's, that's our logo. <laughs> I don't mean Eastgate's logo. Ours is something else. But, it's, but I mean, that's the, 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 the thing that summarizes and represents Christianity, the cross. Not a sword. This is God's pattern, and it runs opposite of what we've always understood. It's backwards from the way that we've always pursued life. But this is the life that lasts. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, pursued all of those political machinations, and what did it get them? Ruination and death and destruction. There's another pattern that we're called to. We're challenged to see the contrast between these two patterns. We've been raised on the patterns of promoting our own self-interest. We sometimes fear that everything that we'll lose if, if we back down from that fight. But Jesus is finding us, is, is, is inviting us to find a new kind of life. A life that trusts in his plan and his pattern. A life that promotes his goodness as a means of changing the world around us. Not through coercion, but through hearts legitimately changing. So it's up to us to pay attention to what patterns we're adhering to. To where we are in this story. As it's unfolding in our society presently, we have to pay attention. We have to. Let's be willing to stop ourselves if we recognize some selfish formation in our thinking and our words, in our, in our activities or actions as we interact with our fellow human being. Let's reject the brokenness of this world. Let's, by an act of our will, be sacrificial in our love and then see how God begins to redeem things. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Then we'll see what he'll do in our world. I'm sorry. Right on. (laughs) So this morning we're celebrating communion. And it's a ritual that lifts up Christ's sacrifice for us. The life that we were called to the life that he lived out before us, the death that he died on our behalf. It's our calling. It's our calling. We cannot let the voice of the usurper speak into our ear at this time. We cannot do it. The cross is calling The cross is calling out through all of the static. Will we hear it, Lord? Will we hear it? Help us hear it, Lord. Help me settle down, Lord. Okay, the... 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 the, uh, Communion of the bread and cup... The table of the Lord.
The night that Jesus was betrayed, he got together with his disciples and they were celebrating as best we could understand it, the Passover meal. Is that for me? Surely, thank you, sis. And as he was going through the Passover, God, Lord, help me. I, I, I feel like I'm making a scene and I really don't mean to make a scene. I really don't want to. I'm, and I don't know why. I don't know why I'm going through this. I'm trying not to. Guys, no, you don't have to do that. I'm just going to, just give me a second. To... <clears throat> I'm glad Riley's not here. He'd never let me live this down. <laughs> if you don't know, Riley's my brother, and he will cry if you say good morning. So <laughs> I'm sorry, Riley, if you see this, I'm sorry. <laughs> On the night, <laughs> am I channeling him? Is that what? <laughs> On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took this bread and and he said, "This is now representative of my body, that's that's given for you." And he was speaking about the sacrifice he was about to make, laying down his life in order to change the world. And 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 after the supper, he took the cup of redemption. He said, "This." Is and I believe he's saying is representative. I don't believe it was literally transforming into, this is representative of my blood. And he said, this is a new covenant, a new way that we're relating to God, a new way, not the old religious way of having to follow rules in order to somehow retain our position as children of God, but this new way of coming into relationship with God through being brought in to reconciliation by this sacrifice made on our behalf. This is a new, this is a new covenant in my blood. It rescues us from the drudgery of empty religion. It rescues us from the patterns of this broken world. It leads to life and doesn't continue the pattern of senseless death. And so he took the bread and the cup, passed it around. Everybody was freaked out because he's talking about his body and his blood again. And wondering if we're back to the whole cannibal talk and everybody's uncomfortable and unsure, but afterwards they put it together. They realized what he was trying to say. This was the sacrifice he was making that was going to change the world. And so as we take this this morning, um, if we can look past the histrionics and everything that was going on up here and contemplate this, think about this, think about this, what this means to us, what we're, we're participating in here, it's like a covenant meal. It's a reminder of who it is that we belong to, who it is that we follow, and how it is that we get to this place. Not by might, not by power, by His Spirit, by this sacrificial love that God showed to us. So as we take this bread and drink this cup, let's remember that love shown to us. Let's make a commitment this morning to embrace that love, to embrace that pattern, and see how the world can change. Right on? All right, there's a, I'll pray over the elements here, but there's a table in the front, the table in the back. We have bread for anyone who may have food allergies. But Father, we count these as emblems of your sacrifice for us. Help us, Lord, in the midst of this tumultuous, confusing time in our day and age, in our present hour, 
in this society in which we find ourselves. Help us. Lord Christ, help us to follow you, to emulate this love in our lives. We pray that you do this as a work of your spirit deep in our hearts as we share this meal. And we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So take uh, the bread. Come and get the bread and the cup. You can take it back to your seats. Uh, just eat it when, when you feel prepared and ready to do it. Uh, you can gather with some people and share this. You can t- take it on your own, but let's remember to love one another in the process too. So high fives, hugs, and handshakes are all acceptable uh, within this framework. But let's share this meal together.
us. We thank you for it all. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, real quick, before we, we leave here and speak the final blessing on each other, uh, just want to make sure everybody knows there's a storm uh, brewing out there in the Gulf. I thought it'd be good for us to pray uh, about that. Sometimes we'll say, well, let's pray for that. I don't want to necessarily pray for a storm. I want to pray about a storm and ask the Lord uh, for deliverance for whoever is affected by it. These are the places you need to pay attention to, to be prepared for uh, whatever's coming. Obviously, we'll stay close in touch and see what's going on through this week. But let's uh, pray right now uh, about that. Father, we pray uh, for mitigation of damage from this storm. We know, Lord, we live in a world where chaos still uh, affects us in great ways. And so we pray, Lord, that you preserve, first of all, preserve life through all of this, but uh, mitigate damages, provide who, whoever is impacted by the storm, pro provide us, Father, with the, with the stamina and the strength that we need to rebuild and move forward. Let your grace be here to overshadow us and protect us through the storm, Father. We trust you to do this. We trust you to be with us, be with everybody involved, and we commit ourselves to you. Our lives are in your hands, Father, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to close today by, by speaking the Lord's Prayer, or this version of the Lord's Prayer, uh, together. If you need prayer for anything, feel free to come on up. We'd love to pray with you uh, and see what God will do. But let's uh, speak this together. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace.